This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Mike Yusim, Director of the Center for Leadership and Change here at Wharton. Welcome to the program, and uh, we're going to have um, a really interesting discussion with two guests. Uh, and they really come to us through the Fells Institute of Government here at the University of Pennsylvania. It sponsors the Public Policy and Practice Series. And we're uh, lucky enough to have two of the guests in that particular program in that series with us uh, tonight, uh, one in the studio and one by phone. So let me introduce um, uh, Io, Io Gonzalo, a senior staff attorney for HIAS Pennsylvania, stands for Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. And Io, uh, you're right here in the studio with me. Good to have you. You're also an adjunct professor with the University of Pennsylvania's Law School's Transnational Leader Legal Clinic. So, Io, great to have you. Thank you for having me. And Dale uh, Rusikoff, you are on the line. You're an investigative journalist. Uh, you worked um, in, in, uh, for the Washington Post for many years. Uh, you're the author of a well-known book called The Prize, Who's in Charge of American Schools, which was about Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook, of course, his $100 million gift to the Newark, New Jersey schools. So, Dale, great to have you on the program as well. Thank you. Great to be with you. And we usually, uh, as we delve into a discussion with you, like to hear a little bit about how you got from where you were to where you are now. So, Iowa, beginning with you, um, how did you migrate into immigration law? So I actually began my legal career in the corporate world, and I was doing work in mergers and acquisitions. Uh, this was back in the um, the eighties, a while ago. And at some point, I just recognised that this really wasn't what I had wanted to do. When I had decided to be a lawyer, when I was I don't know twelve or thirteen years old, I envisaged myself working with people and helping people, and. Uh, Unfortunately, the work in, corporate, in the corporate field just really wasn't fulfilling in the way that mm -hmm. I had envisaged. Mm -hmm. I stumbled into immigration work and began my immigration career in Manchester, which is in the north of England, working with a really committed group of immigrant advocates and um, realized that I'd, I'd really found my calling and I think in 1997, I had decided to do a master's here in the United States because I had a plan to work with um, the United Nations, and that didn't quite pan out. But um, after I finished my legal career, after I finished my master's, I went to work with HIAS Pennsylvania as a legal intern. And um, the rest is history. I never left, and I've been happy ever since. <laughs> here you are. Wonderful. Yes. All right, Dale, how about you, from where you were to where you are today? Um, well, <clears throat> I, I started life uh, in Birmingham, Alabama. I was born and raised there during the 50s and 60s, so I grew up during the Civil Rights Movement, um, was very aware of segregation, racial violence, extreme inequality. Um, those were just things that were all around me. Um, and I guess I was lucky enough to have parents who thought that all of this was profoundly wrong and kind of raised me to understand that. And I think I just always wanted to do something to try to make a difference. And um, when I went to college, I, I'd always loved to write, and I ended up on the college newspaper staff and loved writing articles and gathering information and um you know, putting it out there and trying to inform people and make a difference that way. And I, I just, that's what I started off my life doing, and I haven't stopped. I've worked at a number of different newspapers, but I spent most of my career, 28 years at the Washington Post, um, covering local news and then national news. Um, you introduced me as an investigative reporter. I do some investigative reporting, but I just think of myself generally as a reporter, um, I do a lot of in-depth feature stories, um, so they're not all investigative by any means. Um, and um, 
when I left the Washington Post, I became a freelance writer. That was around 2008. And um, I got extremely interested. I'd always been very interested in education, but I got deeply interested in it when I wrote the book that I did on the Newark schools. Um, and the way I got into immigration was that I, I, was, I did an article um, in very early 2017, right after Trump took office. It was published like the second week Trump was in office about um, DACA students um, who went to college. What was it like to be an undocumented student in college? And um, I just became, I mean, I was writing about it through the lens of education, but I became fascinated by their family stories and the incredible stress they were suddenly under with the election. Um, And so I decided to do, I really wanted to do a lot of in-depth reporting on immigration, and that's how I came to work on the pieces that we did in Philadelphia um, or in, in Pennsylvania generally. Um, and we worked on those for over a year, my colleague Debbie Sontag and I. So, Dale, I uh, thank you. I really appreciate uh, your tracing out that uh, that path. Really interesting. A common thread on that path is you wanted both to make a difference. It took a while and uh, probably in both your cases to get to where you finally wanted to be. Uh, I in particular, you said that took a little while to figure out where the place was for you to make a difference. This, of course, is a program on leadership and action, and if leaders do nothing else, they do make a difference in the lives of others. So, Dale, beginning with you, if you could help our listeners tangibly appreciate how, as a writer, uh, uh, in what you have done, what you've focused on, what you've maybe even brought to the fore— you have made a difference, and I've got the same question for Io. But, Dale, let's begin with you. You're saying how have I made a difference? Uh, yeah, the... really looking for – sorry, I wasn't clear on that. Uh, just looking for uh, an example where you really felt you did make a difference. Well, I guess I felt that my book made a difference. Good. Um, because um, – but, I, you know, I didn't know – I mean, when I set out, it wasn't like I saw a wrong and I wanted to write it. I just was very – interested in what this, um, you know, this money and this effort of philanthropy and politics, because it very much involved the mayor of Newark, then Cory Booker, Mm -hmm. the governor, then Chris Christie. Um, And uh, I just wanted to follow it. I wanted to see what charter schools really meant um, in the context of one very disadvantaged group of kids. Um, And uh, it didn't have a side or anything. But over the course of the time that I followed this, it became really clear that um, philanthropy, as as, be, as it's being practiced by um, what what's known as the venture philanthropists, you know, the current generation of extremely wealthy people, um, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, um, you know, the, there's also others like, um, <clears throat> oh, I'm blanking out his first name, but Broad, the Broad um Oh, yeah. Eli. Uh, Eli Broad, thank you, um, and, uh, and and others that um, they they have a real mission to change education dramatically, but their philanthropy goes at it from the top. You know, they they try to change the system from the top down, and there is no um, engagement or very little engagement with the people who you know are whose lives they're trying to change. Mm-hmm. You know, the kids and the families in these cities and in these schools and the teachers in the schools. And um, so I think that my book made very clear that um, that, that was a real flaw, um, that that led to a tremendous amount of pain and backlash in the city. It hmm. totally shaped the results of the mayoral race that, w- that went on near the end of the you know period that the money was being spent. Um, and... Uh, I think they they did change. Their, they very much changed their approach toward the end in Newark. And I was I found that I was being invited to speak to different philanthropies about my research, my book, and they were all talking about how to, you know, change the way they approached um, education in uh, disadvantaged inner cities um, to make sure that they had the community's voice at the table. Uh, in the community at the table. So I I felt like it did make a difference because people were aware that, you know, when you just read the story from beginning to end, it's it's clear that that, you know, that that was not the way to go. 
Yeah, let's stay on that for a second more. Uh, in the past, I have had some direct engagement in uh, international social development programs. And there is a mantra, I think it's right, that for development programs, let's say coming from the U.S. Agency for International Development, the arm of the U.S. State Department that uh, provides um, uh, social humanitarian assistance around the world, for it to be effective, it's got to be reasonably bottoms-up driven. Coming from the top, it's probably going to miss the target, maybe even having distorting consequences. I hear you. I think you're saying the same thing in the case of the schools of Newark, New Jersey. So what was your your take on, or maybe I'll put it differently, uh, I think there at the end you're implying that it does need to have a huge bottoms-up input if it's going to be effective. So anyway, Dale, over yes, to you. That's exactly, that's exactly what I felt and what I, I felt that the, you know, just the evolution of what happened in Newark, it just it spoke for itself, really. It, that, that is the, you know, that, that's, a, that's a basic principle. And interestingly, um, when Mark and Mark Zuckerberg and his wife, Priscilla Chan, gave, you know, their 90-something percent of their fortune um, to this new entity that's supposed to be part philanthropic and part, um, you know, for-profit, part entrepreneurial, mm-hmm. um, but they, it's their goal, like, to, quote, make the world a better place. Uh, it's called the, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. The, their first two principles were taken directly from the lessons of Newark that were in my book. And mm. the first one was that you can't empower people without engaging them. And that's everything they're going to do with their money from now on will be, you know, they'll make sure that they understand the desires of the community and the needs from their perspective, not just from the donor's perspective. And yep. the other thing they said, which was another point I made, was that um, you don't change the world with short-term investment. You know, like Newark, they were going to turn around a school district that had been in decline for half a century, and they were going to do it in five years. Hmm. And they said, you know, that they would never do that. They would never try to do that again, that they would invest only for the long term. Um, and by that, they meant 25 years, maybe 50 years. Um, so yep. um, I thought... That, that was really interesting that they reached those conclusions. So, Dale, I like that. I'm going to put my editorial words on this. When we think about people who who write, who speak, uh, they're doing this as typically a solo practitioner. My guess is most of your work with The Post, uh, you were the sole byline, although, of course, not always. But it's kind of a solo activity. That said, uh, in having an impact on others— uh, through the power of the word, whether in a book, an article, maybe even over the air, uh, it is, uh, let's call it thought leadership. And I'm glad to know that indeed, a uh, nice kind of tangible sense here that some of the thoughts in your book have influenced how uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Priscilla go about administering uh, cash through their, their foundation. So I over to you, just uh, an example from your own experience where you felt Let's take your recent incarnation as a um, attorney working on immigration law. Uh, what would be an example, something that you've been through maybe the last five years where you felt you made a difference? So um, I was actually reflecting on the question, and I, I think it's really difficult for me to talk about one specific incident. I, I think for me it huh. is just being engaged in what I consider to be the fight for immigrants. And um, I would concur with Dale that um, when you're thinking about empowerment, it's also about engaging with the communities that you're working for. And so even though my work is based on individual cases, a lot of the influence, I would say, that I've had in this in this environment has been working with various um, immigrant communities advising them, doing trainings, giving advice in terms of what is possible within the framework of the immigration laws that we have, how to think outside the box as well in terms of how they can um, have their voices heard with respect to letting uh, legislators know exactly what it is that they think is 
should happen with respect mm. to immigration law. The unfortunate thing is right now no one's listening. Um, but that doesn't mean that you don't stop having the conversations and you don't stop advocating for change that's going to be effective for um, immigrant communities. My work is, in terms of influence, I mean, obviously I influence in, on the individual level when I'm doing cases, um, going to court, filing applications. There's a real sense of the opportunity to affect people's lives, which is what I enjoy. Um, but more now, I think I'm sort of looking at the bigger picture in terms of the policy. But, yeah, it's, it's really about empowering community groups um, and enge engaging with them as well so that you don't feel as if you're telling them what they should be doing. Hmm. Yeah, you know, the, uh, the world is bottom-up if it's going to work well. So empowerment, working with the grassroots... A lot of what you worry about is policy coming from the top, but the response to it has to come from the bottom up. Hi, let me just and Dale, let me just uh, remind our listeners that you are tuned to Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel One Thirty Two. I'm your host, Mike Yusim, and we're talking with you, Ayo Gonzalo, Senior Staff Attorney for the HIAS uh, Pennsylvania, uh, for Pennsylvania uh, and Immigration. Uh, I think a nonprofit organization. I'm right on that. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, and you're also adjunct professor at our law school here at Penn. And Dale, you are uh, a free, uh, Dale Rusikoff, freelance writer, author of a bestseller, The Prize, Who's in Charge of American Schools? That was about the schools of Newark, New Jersey. And uh, let me just stay with you, Io, for a few more minutes now, in that uh, I know both of you have spent um, a lot of your time in recent years thinking, writing, and litigating on immigration law. Probably more than sometimes you uh, wish you had to spend all your time doing that. But anyway, thank you for doing that. It's a vital part of um, contemporary uh, policy concern. Right, let's start with you. Just give us a, a quick primer on what you've been working on and why immigration law and representing the litigants that you've worked with, why that has become so vital. So you talked about some of the litig well you talked about litigation work that I do. So I guess mm. over the years, um, a lot of my my most influential work I'd say has been in the asylum realm. Um, mm. So asylum work is to provide protection to those who are in the United States who feel that they can't return to their. Uh, country of origin because of uh, they are going to be persecuted because of their race, nationality, mm -hmm. political opinion, their religion, or because they're members of a particular social group. So I've had the um, distinct pleasure, if you like, of being involved in some very important cases in the mm. um, in the Third Circuit. And uh, all of these cases that I've been able to work on, I've done in partnership with private attorneys. And so because I work with a non-profit organization, our resources are limited. And so in order for us to be able to really do impactful work, we partner with private attorneys, uh, attorneys in private firms. And so the one of the cases that I've worked on was to look at uh, the definition of a particular social group. Um, mm. And so the, the, the case that I would say that I'm most proud of, if you like, uh, was Valdivizio Galdemez, which was a tw 2011 case uh, before the Third Circuit, where, where um, we were essentially challenging the Executive Office of Immigration Review, which is the administrative appeals body for immigration court cases, when it made a determination that changed the definition of, or at least the criteria that needed to be considered when you're looking at whether or not a person is a member of a particular social group. And the Third Circuit issued this, um, what I would call a wonderful decision, hmm. um, basically being very critical about the agency's change from established criteria without giving any reason for that change. Um, since then, there have been other cases that have come through. We're now dealing with cases that the Attorney General is calling to himself to make decisions on. So the fight is not over, and I don't think it ever will mm -hmm. be, because we're talking about immigration. Um, but those are the things that um, really give me satisfaction in terms of the work that I do. It's just knowing that it's possible to use the law in ways that you can 
further the rights of the um, the undocumented, those that um, have few rights on paper. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the kind of work that Great. I really enjoy doing. Dale, let's stay in, stay in the same terrain here for, for a few more minutes. I know you have done a lot of work, a lot of reporting on those who are looking for undocumented individuals here in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. So describe that if you would and just tell us um, what the issues are that you're most concerned about. Well, um, this this is the series of articles that um, my colleague Debbie Sontag and I did for ProPublica, and they were also published in the Philadelphia Inquirer. <clears throat> and we ended up focusing on the region of ICE, Immigration, Customs, and Enforcement, um, which is headquartered in Philadelphia. It's predominantly Pennsylvania, but it also includes Delaware and West Virginia. And we discovered by looking at the press releases that each regional ICE office puts out um, that the, uh, the Philadelphia region was arresting more, taking into custody, more undocumented immigrants with no criminal record than any other region in the country. And in fact, they were 66% of the people that they had taken into custody since uh, President Trump came into office were non-criminals, whereas, so two-thirds, whereas the rest of the country overall, it was one-third, and then two-thirds were criminals you know, people with criminal convictions. So we just set out to look at Philadelphia region purely for that reason. We thought, why is this so out of line with the rest of the country? And is this a harbinger of how things are going to change if all of, if the Trump policies take effect nationally? Is there some reason mm-hmm. that Philadelphia is ahead of the curve in, in you know, applying the, the Trump doctrine? Um, and uh, we actually think, you know, we didn't answer that question definitively, but as the year went on, other regions started in arresting more and more people who were, um, you know, who had no criminal record. So it does appear that, you know, they're becoming more like the Philadelphia region. Hmm. But <clears throat> what we were just struck by was that um, ICE could, um, we, we found clear cases of racial profiling where they, you know, they went, it went into workplaces and um, put all the Hispanic workers up against the wall and ignored all of the non-Hispanic workers and then, you know, asked them for their IDs and their, you know, their immigration history and so forth. Um, they There were um, other cases where um, they stopped vans, um, also, you know, the, the set, Pennsylvania is one of the more agricultural states in the country. I, this was news to me. I had not known that. Um, but I think it's like one, maybe the fifth biggest apple producer, um, the first or second mushroom producer. Mm. Um, the dairy industry is very prominent. Uh, the Pennsylvania dairy industry is very prominent nationally. And um, so they, they have a lot of undocumented workers uh, because they can't, find people with, you know, citizens to do the work they're asking for. It's pretty horrible working conditions. Mm. Um, and so um, they'll, you know, these are people who don't, they don't have driver's licenses. So a van from the farm picks them up in the morning and then brings them to, say, the mushroom farm. And um, what was happening was ICE was trailing these vans. And as soon as they were full, they pulled them over. And there was no, there was no kind of, they didn't have a warrant. They didn't have anyone in particular they were looking for. They just wanted everybody's IDs and papers, and they all ended up being booked through ICE. Um, and so we were able to document this, and um, we were just struck that the immigration courts um, don't, you know, I mean, even if you, well, I mean, this is, this is actually um, based on a Supreme Court ruling that if, if in, um, since, since immigration, since an immigration violation is a civil violation, not a criminal violation, the normal rules of criminal procedure don't apply. So if you find that an immigration officer has done, has violated someone's constitutional rights, that's not enough. You have to find that they, they violated them egregiously or that, in, that there was a widespread pattern of violations. And without that, you can't make a case. 
And so, you know, it's, it's okay under the law for immigration officers to violate constitutional rights um, it, unless the lawyers can prove a widespread pattern or an egregious violation. Hale, we're going to... Uh, I'm going to break in. We're going to take a a brief break, a breather, a station break here. Uh, But I want to stay on this topic. And as we come back with you and I.O., I'm going to um, ask us to build out on a a couple things you've said. I'll put my words on it. We've got a problem here of uneven administration of national policies. Um, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, and so on, very different in a way that ICE has been working than other states that's a problem. That's an issue. And then uh, we've also got some of the issues that we're going to come back to that you just referenced, which is a sometimes seemingly arbitrary identification of people for uh, on the basis of a belief that they are likely to be undocumented when there's no direct evidence to that effect. So anyway, we'll come back on that. I want everybody to stick around. I'm Mike Yusim. I'm speaking with Ayo Gonzalo and Dale Rusikoff. Uh, you're listening to Leadership in Action, of course. Stick around. We'll be back in three minutes. Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome back. Leadership in Action, that is us. I'm Mike Yusim, Sirius XM's business radio powered by the Wharton School. Our guests this hour are Ayo Gonzalo, senior staff attorney with HIAS Pennsylvania, also adjunct professor here at our law school at, at the University of Pennsylvania, and Dale Rusikoff, a writer, former Washington Post, and now freelance and author of a bestseller a couple of years ago, The Prize, Who's in Charge of American Schools? And Io and Dale, let me actually uh, begin here with Io. I made a comment just before the break that um, national policies that aren't national, or at least nationally administered in a fair and consistent way, Sometimes will come crashing down over the just out of the of their own weight of ineptness or ineffectiveness, and I'm hearing that some of the ways in which the immigration law is administered uh, geographically. Let's just start with that. It can make an enormous difference what area, what district you're in. So, my own parallel reference here to something I came to know a little bit about uh, about a while ago is on our national legislation requiring uh, young people to register for military service. And the earlier system of conscription we had, the draft, this now is many, many years ago, uh, before it came crashing down, before we suspended the draft, had extremely uneven administration district by district, almost county by county. It led to a kind of a discrediting of the system, so, um, Io, beginning with you, just talk a little bit about your sense for how uneven and sometimes how consequently unfair the the principles or the practices of administrative law are applied. Let's begin geographically, but I know it goes beyond that. So, Io, over to you. So, what I'd say is that the law itself is colorblind. Unfortunately, in terms of application, that's not the case, right, which is what you're talking about. And to just sort of tie into um, what Dale was talking about in terms of the the, the specific targeting of people in Pennsylvania. So sometime, well, even under the Obama administration, there was this provision under the law that uh, Section 287G that allowed um, local... um, local police departments to enter into agreements with the federal government uh, to work in partnership to basically notify them whenever they came into contact with someone who was undocumented. And local police departments could make the decision that they wanted to sign those uh, agreements and to to work in that partnership. Uh, Philadelphia was one of the... um, the, the, the cities that decided that it wasn't going to enter into those agreements because it understood that by declaring that it wanted to work with the federal government in terms of identifying the undocumented, it was actually going to be destabilizing immigrant communities here because it would mean hmm. that people would not want to come forward when there were crimes that were being committed, um, survivors of domestic violence would not be reporting people because they would know that if they were reported to the police, the police would then report them to ICE. And so uh, Philadelphia was not 
a, um, a, a signatory to one of these agreements. And it became known, or the term that was being used for, for um, Philadelphia was sanctuary city. Mm-hmm. What that term means is, you know, amorphous, I and mean, you define it how you wish, but it essentially meant that we are going to protect our community and we're not going to enter into these agreements. What we have seen anecdotally as a result of Philadelphia deciding not to enter into these agreements is an increased targeting of people who are um, who look different, who look like mm-hmm. they are foreign. In the way that Dale was talking about, um, although she was speaking about it in, in a wider context, uh, state police were stopping people. Um, but essentially it was targeting Philadelphia for uh, enforcement action because Philadelphia had decided not to sign these um, these agreements. Under the Obama... Well, so let me just take a step back. We know that in the United States there are 11 to 13 million people here who are undocumented. You are not going to work your way through deporting those numbers. There has to be some kind of legislation that figures out how to legalize the majority of the people that are here. Under the Obama administration, it decided pragmatically that it would focus its resources on those with criminal records and those who had recently arrived in the United States after um, December 31st, 2013. Some some date, uh, I think that was the date. Under this administration, they said, we're going to do away with that, we're going to target everybody. Um, And so, although... In the news, you're hearing them say, well, we're still targeting criminals, we're targeting this group, that group. Essentially, everybody is a priority for removal. Mm. That's an impractical approach. So then when you get this uh, partnership between ICE and local police authorities that targets people that are in in, um, Pennsylvania or Philadelphia, it's it's more of a punitive approach Mm. because... We have decided that we are not going to be, um, I don't want to use the word bullied, but the idea was that if you don't enter into these agreements, there would be money that should go to Pennsylvania to help it to increase its its police enforcement work, um, and that money would be withheld. Um, there's been a lot of litigation around that, and at this point... Um, we, as in the city of Philadelphia, has been very successful in fighting off the the, the, the efforts of the administration to, to um, withhold significant sums of money from the city. Ayo, thank you on that. Uh, Dale, why don't you jump in on that one? Well, <clears throat> when you said that, you know, there are regional variations. I mean, there are variations, you know, with, from one town to the next in Pennsylvania because as Io said, you know, there are local police and definitely the Pennsylvania State Police um, who have been um, either authorized or on their own have decided that they're going to help ICE round up undocumented immigrants. So in our story, we found that the, there's one particular state police officer in the Carlisle barracks who um, just routinely stops people on I-81 um, who are brown and calls ICE, asks them for their papers, and if they can't produce, you know, evidence of citizenship, calls ICE and holds them for up to four hours without a warrant, which is unconstitutional. There's Supreme Court decisions saying that you cannot extend the traffic stop beyond the time it takes to resolve the underlying traffic violation. Um, and and uh, what I found, which was amazing to me, was that this, this particular officer patrols I-81 in Pennsylvania. So I-81 enters Pennsylvania from Maryland and leaves Pennsylvania from New York. In both Maryland and New York, there are state policies for the state police saying you may not detain anyone, regardless of race um, or any other characteristic, um, beyond the time it takes to resolve the underlying traffic violation. And then it says this is unconstitutional. So mm. if you do that, you're going to be, you know, you will you'll be individually sued, and the department will be sued. And so, so a person who with like maybe driving without a seatbelt 
would be ticketed and sent on their way in Maryland or New York. But for the same violation on the same interstate highway, if they were stopped in Pennsylvania, this guy would have them on their way to ICE and ICE would be deporting them. And, you know, we, we were just stunned. And there that's in Carlisle. The town of Carlisle, the city of Carlisle, follows the law and does not detain people, you know, hmm. for, for ICE um, when they're stopped for traffic infraction. Um, but within, you know, but that the, the state police barracks, which is in that town, has a different authority they answer to, and they do. So, I mean, what's happened um, under the Trump administration, having made everyone a priority, um, these local state and state and local police officers are just sort of freelancing. Um, and they, yep. some of them have strong, strong relationships with ICE. But I'll just tell you a really interesting anecdote. This particular state police officer I'm talking about, um, I got his cell number, and I called him uh, and left a message and said I would like to talk to him. And then um, he didn't respond, and I called again, and I said, if I have the wrong number, this is not this particular <laughs> officer, please call and tell me. I don't want to bother you. And within less than an hour, I got a call from the um, the spokesperson in Washington for ICE telling me that this officer did not want to talk to me. He didn't work for ICE. He worked for the hmm. state police. But clearly, he works through ICE, and somehow it got all the way to the top of ICE in Washington. And he was I was told to lay off of him. So um, he... Um, you know, I'm, he's, he's pretty valuable to ICE, but he has no role because, as I.O. said, the state of Pennsylvania doesn't have this relationship. He is not deputized to um, enforce immigration law. He's supposed to do the traffic laws and the criminal laws of the state of Pennsylvania, but he's made himself a deportation officer. And there hmm. were a number of local police officers who we found who had done the same thing. Hmm. Yeah, let me, uh, really interesting, let me stay on this general terrain, but shift laterally to the detention of children separate from their parents. This has been an issue now for some months in the U.S., still unresolved. Many children currently in uh, camps without their parents. And as I recall, but correct me once I turn it over to you, and let's begin with you, Dale. This was initially Homeland Security, but I think uh, Health and Human Services is directly involved as well. And uh, help us understand um, maybe the same issues now in this area in terms of administrative practice or maybe even administrative of law being applied in ways that uh, may not be consistent, may not even be proper. So, Dale, picking up on that, your thoughts on the separate detention of children uh, from parents as uh, families arrive at the border and cross into the U.S.? Well, you know, one of the ways in which this is directly related is that um, these children, you know, they are placed um, in shelters and sort of foster care, all under the aegis of the Department of Health and Human Services after ICE has, or the Border Patrol, has taken them and their parents into custody. And the um, these shelters are now vastly overcrowded because they used to... Uh, find relatives of these children or, or you know, family friends or somebody who would take these children and, you know, be their guardians until their parents' case was resolved mm -hmm. or, or um, whatever. And now, because of the, you know, the priority being every person who's undocumented, some of these people who would take them into, you know, would take um, guardianship of them, they're undocumented. And they're afraid to come and present themselves to take these young children into custody because, you know, the, all the federal agencies are reporting them to ICE. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that, that leads, these children have nowhere to go. Um, and so those two things come into direct, you know, they just reinforce each other and it, the crisis gets even bigger. The yeah. So if I might, Michael. Just yeah, to, just... actually, hang on just a second. I, I'm going to just remind our listeners that we're listening, uh, about to listen to you. Ayo uh, Gonzalo, senior staff attorney with the Hebrew Immigration Aid Society, also a member of the faculty here in our own law school. And we've been talking with Dale Rusikoff, a writer, former Washington Post writer, now freelancer, 
and author of a book called The Prize. So with that said, Io, over to you. Just add what you were about to reference. So what I was going to do is I was just going to add that uh, – so the, the prior procedure was that um, in order to determine whether or not a child should be released to a relative or someone who could take care of them, the Office of Refugee Resettlement, which is in the um, uh, was the agency that was responsible for doing the the, um, the background checks, that work has now been directly uh, seconded to ICE. So it's now ICE that's doing that Immigration Customs Enforcement. So there's a chilling effect mm-hmm. right there. When ICE is doing those checks, it's actually requiring that every member in the household where the child is going to be placed provide information so that they can be checked. In many of these cases, you have mixed status families, people who have immigration status, people who do not have immigration status. Why would you, as a person who has immigration status, provide information to Immigration and Customs Enforcement of somebody within your household who is undocumented. You're just not going Mm -hmm. to do it. And so therefore, as Dale says, the number of people that are available to take custody of these children has been significantly reduced because of the risks to other people within the household. And so you have a situation where essentially the administration is creating this problem for themselves, right? You, You now have children who ordinarily would been would have been released to people who could take care of them being in detention. And I can tell you that, on average, it costs about $208 a day to detain someone. It's a three-star hotel. <laughs> if. You just can't. If only, right? You, you, can just, you can't check out. That's, uh, no, I've been to <laughs> – yes, exactly, you can't. But, and I've yeah. been to some of these facilities and, you know – Three star doesn't even cut it. Right. No, uh, <laughs> I know you're kidding. No, but I just, just kidding. No, it's a yes. metaphor. But anyway, given the price. <laughs> yes. Dale, would you like to add on that before we move into a couple final topics here? Uh, no, go ahead. I, I mean, I think that, that, that says it all, doesn't it? Um, well, let's, let's wrap this yeah. one up then with a, a question. I'm sure many listeners have thought about this one a lot. We read about it a lot. We're very concerned about it a lot as well. Looking ahead, next three or four months, is this... Is this particular practice, this is going to be a provocative term, a failure of leadership? Dale, why don't you start on that one? You mean the, the practice of separating children from their families? Yes. Um, and you well, can take the I phrase, guess, a failure of leadership in any direction you like. Well, it, it's a failure of leadership, but it's a, I think it's a failure of morality and conscience. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I mean, what they're doing to children is, is you know, like... People have said this is this is child abuse, you know, to take children from their parents for the very long periods of time, move them around the country. Um, you know, the, there was you know the group the children that were moved to this camp in Texas, they moved them in the middle of the night because they were afraid, you know, that they might try to run away if they you know moved them in the daytime. Well, you know, that's how miserable they are. They don't have anyone mm-hmm. they're connected to. They don't have anyone they know. There were. There was a two-year-old who had to be testify in court, and when you know her caseworker was told to leave her in the chair by herself, and someone else, a translator was supposed to come over, she she burst into tears. The caseworker was the only person she had a relationship with in this country. You know, I mean, and I, I talked to a, 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 a immigration judge who'd been an immigration judge for 24 years in the York Court in Pennsylvania. And he said that um, he thought this constituted a violation of international mm. law. So it, it's it's even it's I think it goes beyond leadership. Um, you know, just one quick thing I I thought was interesting is a lot of longtime immigration judges are retiring because um, starting October one, uh, they had to to go by new rules that Jeff Sessions had codified. Um, the immigration courts are under the Justice Department, not under ICE. And that, you know, required them to, you know, close, um, you know, deport people much more quickly. And, you know, mm-hmm. it, 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 it basically, um, in their view, compromised due process. So I, I noticed all over the country, if you look at local newspapers, you see that immigration, longtime immigration judges are taking retirement. Yep. Great. I.O. So if I, I'll just add Please. on to uh, 
what Dale is explaining. So on the 1st of October, there were quote, there's a quota system that's been introduced for judges. And so now judges are required to hear 700 cases in a year. Um, and of those 700 cases, no more than 15% uh, can be referred to um, an appellate body. Mm. Um, so this is a system that's already clogged up and... Uh, very stressful for judges to begin with. Now when you have quotas being introduced um, and no clear sort of understanding of the work of the judges, right, in terms of their work to actually review the record, make sure that they have all the information, to give continuances, to allow people to develop the record, to provide evidence, um, that's going to determine whether somebody who has lived in the United States for the better part of their life, is going to be deported to a place that's alien to them. Uh, so you have this system which is really sort of set up to, to, to squeeze everybody to just mm. be rubber stampers, essentially, and to deport people with very few due process protections. But what this is going to result in of course, is more and more challenges, more and more legal work, more and more district court judges, circuit court judges becoming involved in immigration work uh, or immigration law because we as advocates have to do all we can to make sure that we're protecting our clients. But with respect to your question in terms of the failure of leadership, I'd like to look at it on a, on a, on a, on a broader plane and to say that Yes, I believe that there has been a failure of leadership, but from the congressional side. Hmm. Congress has the power to, to pass legislation that is going to um, deal with the people who are undocumented in the United States. You are not going to push them through the immigration system right n- uh, or the legal system. Right now we have three-quarters of a million people already in the, in the court system. In Philadelphia, and Philadelphia is one of the hmm. more efficient courts... But we are getting cases for hearing in 2021. So you're talking about three years mm. hence. We just got a new immigration judge, so hopefully those numbers will, will, will or that time frame will reduce. But that's a ridiculous amount of time. Imagine being in the criminal justice system and waiting three years to get a determination as to whether you're, you're, you're guilty or you're not guilty. It would never happen, but it's okay for it to happen when you're talking about immigrants. Congress has the power, has the authority to intervene and to pass legislation. This particular Congress, probably not because it is so dead, you know, so uh, deadlocked and there's very little negotiation that's, that's occurring. But this is their work. And we as citizens should say, Congress, do your job. So, yeah, absolutely, it's a failure for leadership. So, Iowa and Dale, thank you for your commentary. And one kind of unspoken, almost tacit foundation for what you have said in this uh, discussion and which really kind of define what you've been doing is a sense of optimism that your work, your writing, your involvement, your litigation, your representation can make a difference and hopefully will make a difference. It's partly administrative, it's partly legal, and you just said, Io, it's also partly political. So you need to enter into all three realms that's my indirect way of asking a final question here, and that is how you became you with that sense of optimism and a purpose and a way of taking on these issues to benefit others. Was there a, a mentor, a coach along the way, somebody you work with who's really helped you appreciate what you want to do, what you're good at, and helped you also appreciate that if you do what you are doing, you hopefully will have an impact? So um, just to give you a little bit more in terms of my background. So I, I, am, I am one of five, the only girl. So essentially I, was, I, I, I tell my friends that I was raised a boy because it was just easier, <laughs> right? Um, so I have always had to basically fight for my space. Um, and so that is the mentality with which I see everything. I'm going to fight for my space. And if I'm working on your behalf, I'm fighting for your space too. So that's really how I I, I see everything. Um, And in terms of mentors along the way, I would say that the first uh, lawyer that I worked with when I went into immigration um, law, who's no longer with us, Steve Cohen, uh, Hmm. and he was um, a socialist with a capital S. Um, 
probably sort of on the communist spectrum, which in the UK is okay, right? Um, but he was really very much in the framing of, you know, no one is illegal, there should be no borders. I'm not, I'm not within that camp. I mean, I do understand that there do need to be um, borders. But the, 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 the passion with which he did his work and the passion with which he taught me um, is really what, what drives me. And I think that I'm really grateful to have the passion for the work that I do, and I, I just can't imagine doing it any differently. Hi, you. Thank you very much, Annette. And Dale, your coach, your mentor, your guru, your editor, who really made a difference in who you are. Well, you know, I, I've thought about that, and I actually think that it, it really goes back to before I was a journalist and um, just having parents who um, really were very much against the grain. Um, they were not... Um, bomb throwers or kind of loud crusaders, but they just, you know, believed fervently that everything around us was not right. And um, they they found ways not only to try to change it and ultimately see it change, but um, to keep going and not to lose hope. Um, and I think, you know, in the very segregated, extremely racist at the time, white world, that was hard to do, and I, I kind of feel like they had a lot to do with me feeling like this is really, you know, this is a long haul, and it's worth sticking with it. And I, I guess, too, I, another interesting piece of that is that my dad was a doctor, and um, he often came up with a different diagnosis from that of other uh, doctors on a particular case. And people always said that he really listened to the patient. It's a matter of um, listening. Yep. Yeah, and he he told you know he he believed every patient had a story and you had to know their story as well as their health. So and Dale, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna break in because we're just about gonna be pulled off uh, out of the studio here. Um, thank you, thank you, Annette. I want to thank you and Io for extremely interesting discussion. We appreciate the work you're doing and we wish you the best in covering, litigating, and in otherwise moving our policies in the direction that we ought to. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.